0: Long years ago, we made it fixed with destiny, and now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge. A moment comes which comes but rarely in history. When we step out from the old to the new, it is fitting that at this solemn moment we take the pledge of dedication to the service of India and her people and to the still larger cause of humanity. Hello everyone, and welcome to India Colonised, a podcast dedicated to South Asia's modern and contemporary history. I am your co-host, Trithika Chauhan, and you are listening to Guftagu, a special series where we discuss and engage with varied authors and scholars of South Asian history. In this episode of Guftagu, we have with us Dr. Himanshu Shuja, author of the book, Capturing Institutional Change, the Case of Right to Information Act in India. Dr. Himanshu Shuja is a faculty in the Department of Political Science at the South Asia Institute Heidelberg University in Germany. His major interests could be located in the areas of politics, policy and history and thus, his empirical and theoretical findings can be based at the intersection of all three. In his new book, Himanshu Shuja traces the story of the events and decisions that led the Indian government to change the norms of secrecy to transparency. That is, the book examines the case of the Right to Information Act 2005 as a transformation in the information regime. Based on the historical archival material, internal government documents, and interviews, the book argues that the RTIA was a result of an incremental, slow-moving process of ideas emerging endogenously from within the state right since independence. By bringing in new evidence that was ignored in the mainstream literature, this book problematizes the dominant and somewhat settled narratives, unpacks and explains the politics of institutional change and attempts to set the history straight. This interview explores and rightly examines the provided stances in the book, along with other broader perspectives of when and how does policy change happens in Indian governments and other intricacies that lead up to major transformations within institutions. Here's the conversation with Dr. Himanshu Jha.
1: Welcome, Dr. Jha. We're absolutely glad to have you on board at IC.
2: Thank you, Ritika. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: Nice. Right. So uh, as we proceed with our interviews, so for the sake of our listeners, I want you to tell us a bit about yourself, your intellectual journey, and somewhat about your areas of interest.
2: Um, so I did my, um, you know, I, I belong to Delhi, basically uh, born and brought up in Delhi, um, You know, I did my undergrad in history honors from Delhi University, did my master's from JNU, uh, went to Australia to to complete my MPhil in public policy. And then for seven years, i actually worked in in the development sector in India, uh, running this um, think tank, policy think tank called Social Watch. And before moving on to do my uh, PhD uh, from the National University of Singapore. So I've got this, you know, as you can see probably in the book, uh, you know, there's a unique blend of history and political science and, and, and theory uh, where I will also locate my research, uh, you know, at the moment where, you know, you pay due respect to the area you do you pay due respect to the field but also make some conceptual points you know so there's a there's a kind of a fusion between praxis and research and that's where my future research is going that's that's where that's where the future lies
1: Sounds absolutely interesting dr. Ja um, so, just, could you just tell me how has your entire journey been while you know putting this amazing book out you know were there any sort of limitations that you had to face because uh, specifically while I was reading the book I mean it is also mentioned that you uh, a major lot of book has also been uh, you know based upon the archival materials that you had to you know gain access to so were there any sort of limitations that you had to face and what was the entire process of putting this book out was like
2: Yeah, no, I think I think, uh, you know, I was probably lucky in uh, laying my hands on a lot of material, which uh, was probably not part of the mainstream narrative about the evolution of RTI. So that way I was lucky. But uh, having said that, you know, digging that material was also a major challenge, you know, getting my hands on some of the material which was uh, not there, you know, some of the material which I would have loved to uh, reveal in this book. Which is mentioned i could not just get uh, access to those to, to those files uh, so for instance uh you know during the Janta party government there was this uh committee constituted by then home minister charan singh um about you know whether to amend the official secrets act or you know have give citizens some kind of access to information um, that File I just could not locate anywhere, uh, whether it be it Home Ministry or archive. So there were files which were missing. There was information which were missing. Um, there were. F- there were items of information which actually I had to trace back to the actual source. Uh, so these are some of the challenges in the field that I faced. Um, of course I've been, I've, I've been kind of lucky uh, in that's in the sense that I've been able to kind of locate most of the material get some files with helps of uh, a lot of wonderful people in the field who were actually ready to help. So it is just not my journey, it is also journey of those people who have helped me write this book you know, giving me access to the material that they had but but also giving me hints to where should I find those materials. So, and I've acknowledged most of them in the book. So I, I, I should not name all of them here. But you know, they are acknowledged in the book appropriately.
1: Um, I'm really interested to know, like, what is it that actually drew you to to this entire project?
2: You know, there's a backstory to it, Rithika. You know, as I already told you, I was working in the development sector in India for seven years. um, And I was, you know, involved in the process of monitoring the institutions of governance, you know, and because we were doing this monitoring accountability was something which was uh, big for uh, for us as a group and we engaged with accountability you know we 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 also engaged with uh, asking questions from the government because we were monitoring the institutions of the governance of course the organization's name says it all it was called social watch and uh, you know during during that time you know around 2004 2005 there was a whole, whole plethora of rights which were legislated by the state you know MGNREGS uh, uh, right to information, later on, right to education. And so these were exciting times because, you know, these also kind of, uh, these times also signify that there's a, there was a move from the needs based to the welfare system, which was more rights-oriented welfare system where citizens actually had rights. Um, so we were, of course, kind of thinking deeply about this when I was working in the development sector. And in fact, I remember with UNDP, in partnership with UNDP, we had organized this workshop on right to information users, where you right people who had actually. Actually, use right to information um, uh, came to Delhi, and they uh, uh, told us stories, gave testimonies about how they use right to information. And they were not activists; they were like common people. uh, Some of them also from the disadvantaged section. So that was that was fascinating. And also, there were you know how did these rights came about? They were like settled narratives, right? There were narratives which were uh, which were accepted by everyone. And yet, from this hunch, we knew that there's something more to it, you know. And th- this kind of curiosity led me to, uh, you know, led me back to the so-called drawing board to connect the dots. And I was fortunate to get a scholarship, a fully funded scholarship at uh, the National University of Singapore to actually pursue this line of inquiry. And um, that's how, the, you know, in its nascent form, the idea came about.
1: Right. Um, That absolutely sounds super interesting. Um, So like, because there was this entire process how you came up with this entire, uh, you know, idea. And then you, you know, there was this entire process when you interesting uh, process of you putting down this book. So you know, what were, uh, you know, these some interesting new things that you actually discovered since the book has come out?
2: So, so this is about what, RTI or, you know, oh, the, no, uh,
1: the entire book specifically, and also what sort of impact that the, your book has, has held after it has come out?
2: No, the, so the book, book has got uh, somewhat of traction in the mainstream Indian media where, you know, things which were not known about the whole narrative. Uh, about the evolution of RTI were revealed through this book. Uh, so for instance, uh, you know, long, long before, you know, print carried a story, you know, focusing on the J- Janata Party period, uh, where long before the RTI Act was promulgated, uh, Janata Party had constituted a committee to examine whether the Official Secrets Act should be completely abolished and uh, there should be something like access to information given to the citizens, uh, whether the state should be more open uh, or uh, there was a private member's bill on freedom of information tabled by a member of parliament uh, in way back in 1983. You know, so the, these are some of the, these are some of the uh, kind of sequences which are hidden in the mainstream narrative, uh, which attracted uh, attention from both the journalists, the activists, and the, and the academics alike. Uh, but this book is also doing something conceptually in the sense that, you know, it's contributing to the broader literature on institutional change you know, how do institutions change in a liberal democracy uh, like India? Um, is it just about, is it just driven by the dominant interests on the ground or is it just driven by the elite interests uh, or is it uh, about, you know, um, uh, a weak state captured by the nexus of vested interests uh, kind of view, right? Uh, so this book actually tells you about how institutions change in a liberal democracy like India and give you a detailed account about the uptake of policy ideas within the Indian state. So it kind of also unpacks the processes within the Indian state, uh, which is somewhat of a kind of a parsimoniously treated area uh, in the academia, right? Um, Also, in the institutional change literature itself, uh, this book kind of brings in a case from a developing emerging economy like India, because Mostly, the institutional change literature is dealing with, uh, you know, developed economies or industrialized countries of the West. Very few have actually dealt with, uh, you know, examples or cases from the emerging economies or developing economies from uh, the Global South. Uh, so this book is also contributing in that area, uh, uh, where it's looking at uh, institutional change. How do institutional change? How does institutional change occur? Uh, in the countries of the global South. And also it brings in a case which is outside the economic realm. So most of the stories on institutional change relates to uh, you know, the political economy or, 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 or you know, economic change, right? Institutions of, of, of economics, economy which change. But this book actually brings in a case from uh, a you know, social rights perspective. How does, how does, you know, uh, social change occur, so to speak?
1: Right. Um, so, I mean, that absolutely sounds uh, pretty interesting. So, there is this very different alternative narrative that you've actually put out in your book. Uh, could you just tell us, what is that particular methodology that you, you know, use to build this entire concrete narrative, alternative narrative that you've actually established in your book?
2: You, you know, Ritika, before, before I answer that, let me also tell you something about, you know why rti is is unique you know I, I was talking about the institutional change you know there you know i was talking about the plethora of rights right uh, you know the bouquet of rights mahatma gandhi rural employment guarantee scheme uh, right to information right to education and yet right to information is different you know uh, because you know right to information represents a norm shift something which was illegal a cognizable offense was actually uh, uh, signifies a norm, a norm change from the norm of secrecy right to the norm of openness. So there was a rearrangement in norms, rearrangement in uh, both formal and informal norms, right. Um, the second thing which happened is unlike the other rights-based legislations, right to information did not have a policy precursor, right? So for instance, Mahatma Gandhi Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, there was a precursor to it in form of Jawahar Rozgar Yojana, Employment Guarantee Act in Maharashtra, right to education, there is a precursor of Sarvasik Shah Bhyan. So there are policy precursors to other rights-based regime. In right to information, there was no policy precursor, you know, if at all, right to information represents uh, a policy departure, right? It was a legal offence to both give out and receive information from within the state right the third thing which has happened is that article 19 1 a of the constitution itself was expanded or reinterpreted to inherently contain right to know or right to information right so right to information was part of that bouquet of you know that 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 cluster of rights which was legislated way back in 2005 2006 but and yet it was different because you know the changes were quite institutional and that's why i treat right to information as uh, as a case of institutional change and not other rights as as case of institutional change right um but right to information also poses a puzzle right so why did a state uh you know uh, ushered in in a change in the legal regime uh, which was persisting right since independence and even amended to an to to a stronger version in you know, 1967, after following the India-Pakistan war and India-China war, right? You know, puzzle is puzzle deepens even more when we kind of take into account uh, the view of Indian state as this as one which is captured by the nexus of vested interests. You know, why would the state change a legal regime which would be which would be used to highlight uh, and expose? Uh, the very nexus which is set to govern these institutions. You know, as we can see, RTI has been instrumental in exposing most of the major scams in India, right? Uh, right, since 2006, 2007, major scams in India have been exposed through RTI. So why would the state, uh, you know, open up to scrutiny through RTI? And so it poses a puzzle for us, right? How it is different from the mainstream narrative. Uh, you know, what methodologically, what this book does is it kind of redefines the path of departure, right? So if you're talking about an outcome, if you're talking about an institutional change, you have to kind of trace it back to where it originated from, right? And so most of these, most of the narratives which are, and, and, and the mainstream narrative is mostly around social movement, which emerged in early 1990s, or there's another uh, dominant explanation which says that uh, you know there was a consequential role of um, a dense interpersonal elite network. Uh, Or third view is that, you know, there was a political opportunity pro RTI regime came to power in 2004. And that's how RTI came about. Uh, Now, most of these narratives actually view that RTI was a result of a social pressure, right? There was a grassroots movement and, you know, that kind of led to right to information or in in, in this case, institutional change. Uh, But if you redefine, and most of them start from the 19, late 80s or 1990s, right, early 1990s. But you know, since right to information represents norm of openness, norm of openness emerged from the nested norm of secrecy. The secrecy persisted in India for a long period of time, on top of which the norm of openness actually emerged through uh, the promulgation of right to information. So if you redefine the point of departure, if you redefine the tracing, Of the outcome, you know that allows you to bring in a lot of new, fresh historical material, uh, which 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 is not part of the mainstream narrative or the dominant narrative, right? And so for me, then the starting point was the Official Secrets Act, because Official Secrets Act was something which represented the norm of secrecy at multiple levels, right? It also represented this logic which was dra- driving the bureaucracy and the state for a long period of time, that all official information is key to protect state interests and national interests, right? Uh, as we all know, Official Secrets Act was uh, a colonial legacy. Uh, this was part of uh, you know, the British rule uh, and was also a kind of a law which emerged during the two world wars, right? And so surely it had uh, clauses, it had articles, which uh, kind of was driven by this bureaucratic logic that all official information is key to protect state interests and national interests. After India became independence, Official Secrets Act was just uh, adopted as it is by just merely removing the references to Great Britain in the act and replacing it with India. Not only that, uh, it was accompanied by other laws right civil services conduct rules of 1964 sections 1 2 3 of indian evidence act or manual and office procedures of government of india which further weakened the right to know right to info, you know uh, official secrets act was actually amended in 1967 again to make it even stronger you know some sections of the official secrets act was, was amended uh, where you know the Uh, right to withhold information, uh, you know, in relation to the parliament, was actually even, uh, you know, executive was given power to withhold information from the parliament. Or some, you know, Section 5, for instance, of Official Secrets Act said that, you know, sharing and receiving information would be a non bailable cognizable offense, right? So it had a colonial legacy. And that's why if you redefine the point of departure, that's how you will make the institutional change story complete, And that's why this book, uh, you know, I claim in this book that I present an alternative narrative or alternative explanation about the evolution of RTI. Um, RTI is just a case to show how institutions change um, in a liberal democracy like India.
1: Right. So, like, as we've already, uh, you know, elaborated on how this uh, transition, you know, sort of took place from this, you know, norm of this. secrecy to this norm of openness and you're very well represented that in your book as well. So uh, which you you know sort of you've also sort of elaborated on there are different sets of layers that are that are you know there when we talk about this transition from norms of secrecy to this norm of openness that came about. So could you just Walk us uh, through this layer of specific political development, and what were the basic influences of it, and how you know the idea of freedom of for information moved from opposition because, as you've already explained in your book, that because it was actually it uh, somewhere it bore somewhere in the opposition party. So how did it move from opposition to the mainstream, and what were the political developments that took place during that year that actually influenced the you know entire part of it? Uh,
2: Thanks, Hrithika. That's a very searching question. And, uh, you know, I'm afraid my answer is going to be long and rambling to that because that forms the core of the book. Um, You know, um, I would start by saying that uh, if we go by the definition of institutions as formal, informal norms, you know, RTI represents a kind of a norm shift, right? From the norm of secrecy to the norm of openness. Having said that, you know, institutions also have a bad habit of persisting on the historical landscape because institutional persistence uh, kind of leads to the creation of elaborate social and political networks, which persist along with that institution as well. So Official Secrets Act persisted in India uh, for more than 60 years uh, before RTI was actually promulgated in 2005, right since independence, even before independence. So there was kind of a huge network of vested interests, political and bureaucratic vested interests, which formed around this nested secrecy, where they gained from the institutional persistence, where they gained from secrecy, right? And so the governance processes or processes uh, within the state were actually hidden behind the veil of secrecy. They were not known to the common public. You know, For instance, it was not, not known to the common public that what kind of, what is happening to the develop, their development programs? How, how does the state work? You know, there were were things which were hidden in those files, which were not revealed to the public, right? And so institutions have a bad habit of persisting for a long period of time. And as we can see that in, you know, in the case of uh, the norm of secrecy, the Official Secrets Act was even amended in 1967, right, to an even stronger version. There were civil services conduct rules of 1964. You know, as late as 1994, there was a push towards greater secrecy. You know, in 1994, there was this amendment to the manual of uh, department security instructions, according to which you classify uh, any government file or document as secret, top secret or confidential, right? That was amended uh, to an even stronger version. And you would believe 1994 was also the time when, you know, the 1991 economic reforms had happened. And so you would believe that the state would be more responsive towards the idea of openness, but it was not. Uh, so the norm of secrecy persisted for a long period of time. It was even uh, kind of deeply entrenched within the system. You know, at the same time, what was happening was that in the earlier phase, right since independence, there were rudimentary ideas on openness which emerged on the fringes. You know, there were nascent ideas on openness that the state should open up. So these kind of emanated from three sources. Right, the first source were the government reports themselves. The report, you know, there, there were committees which were constituted by the government. Uh, the, the reports of these government committees themselves hinted or tangentially touched upon the excessive secrecy in the government and uh, and, and need for kind of more openness of the state. So, you know, for instance, in 1953, uh, perhaps one of the first appraisals of public administration in India. Uh, which is which was done by uh, you know a U.S. Uh, academic and senator Paul H. Appelby, which is called Appelby Report. In 1953 itself, the report said that you know there is perhaps a tendency uh, by the Indian government to uh, excessively classify everything secret or confidential. There was this uh, in '62 there was Santanam Committee report, which also touched upon this. So you know. Uh, there were, there were reports of the government committee, which actually from the 50s onwards expressed their opinion in, on the norm of secrecy, uh, still nascent. Uh, the second source was the opposition, right? Because you know, opposition always was denied this privilege of access information from the, you know privileged information, access to privileged information from the state and so for instance in 1965 there was this ruling by the speaker of lok sabha uh, his name was hukum singh uh, that the parliamentarians will can also quote from the confidential documents of the state right earlier parliamentarians did not have that right and this ruling was triggered by uh, by a, an opposition member from satanta party his name was pk deo who wanted to quote from Uh, you know, the union subcommittee report and the report of the Central Bureau of Investigation, which was rather unfavorable to two former chief ministers of Odisha at that time. And so, you know, he was denied that privilege to quote from that confidential document. And there was a big furor in the parliament. The opposition actually demanded that they should be allowed to quote from, from, from confidential documents as well. And, you know, the speaker allowed it to happen. But of course, Right after that Speaker's ruling in 65, in 67, uh, the Official Secrets Act was actually amended to an even stronger version, right? But there has been a push from the opposition itself uh, right from the beginning. The third source was actually the judiciary, the Supreme Court, which approached the whole question of of right to know or Freedom of expression and speech, protecting Article 19, 1A of Indian Constitution, upholding it from the point of view of freedom of press. You know, so you know, right from uh, right right from the right from the beginning, um, you in the 50s onwards, you see that in, in this very nascent form, court actually interpreting Supreme Court interpreting Article 19, 1A of Indian Constitution uh, in new ways. That dissemination of information in the public domain is very important, right? But these were nascent ideas still on the periphery. So what was happening is that the norm of secrecy, which was nested, which was locked in at all the systemic level, was also you know, kind of challenged from the periphery through these reports through the, by the opposition and uh, you know, by the judiciary. And so there was kind of a churning which had started right since independence uh, between the nested norm of secrecy and the norm of openness which kind of attained new significance when the opposition assumed power, right? So Janata Party was the first time that uh, an opposition group of opposition parties had actually formed power at the center. And this was also the first time that you know, a party, a political party, uh, which was running for elections had promised in the manifesto that there, should be greater, there would be greater openness and access to information given to the people. Right. And Janta Party followed it up with, you know, starting up kick-starting policy processes within the state as well. So as I told you, Charan Singh had constituted this committee, but so entrenched was this norm of secrecy that even when ruling party actually came to power in 77, they could not initiate any change in the system. Right. But, se- you know, post Janta parties, things started moving faster. You know, you will see slowly the norm of openness which was still on the periphery slowly moved to the policy center stage uh, you know a lot of government reports which came during that time actually interpreted you know interpreted it you know actually touched upon the issue of right to know directly not tangentially as previous reports had done uh, or you know i just told you about the private members bill on freedom of information which was tabled in the parliament in 1983 uh, the judiciary also sharpened its stance Right? So it was S.P. Gupta case or Raj Narayan case. Judiciary actually interpreted Article 19.1A as inherently containing right to know. Right, So they actually used the term right to know for the first, first time. And so slowly the norm of openness which emerged on the periphery or idea of openness which emerged on the periphery of the policy landscape was moving to the policy center stage. And by the time 1989, by the time National Front government came to power in 1989, what was on the periphery had actually become part of the mainstream. What was part of the opposition realm had become part of the mainstream. So National Front government constituted cabinet committees. Uh, you know, they, uh, uh, the VP Singh himself uh, had favorable view towards uh, you know promulgating something like freedom of information and right to information. Uh, there was a brief hiatus between 1991 and 1996 when the Congress party was in power. Uh, But 96 onwards, again, United Front government, when it came to power, initiated policy processes within the state. And so there was a mainstreaming of the idea, right, which happened uh, 1989 onwards, and which reached, a you know, I call it a tipping point in 2005 uh, or even 2003 when freedom of information was was promulgated. Um, and so this is how you know the norm of openness, which was on the periphery, the rudimentary ideas on openness actually moved slowly to the pol- policy center stage. Uh, you know, gained enough critical mass uh, to uh, to uh, you know effectuate institutional change. This happened in the case of right information. Uh, this might not happen in other cases, right? So that's, I think that's the long rambling story of, of how the, how things actually social, how political processes within the state moved and tells you about the uptake of ideas within the state.
1: Right. So um, like, as you mentioned about as, and you have also elaborated uh, this in your book about this approach, um, this model that you've used to you know, present this alternate narrative of the tipping point, which you term as. You know, to elaborate how this entire Right to Information Act that finally came through was, you know, a gradual clumping of ideas that at a certain point in time, you know, reached its threshold. And you elaborate on this approach, basically, while pushing against this notion of a critical juncture, which is to say, you know, that things did not just explode, exploded out of the blue. So what were those incidents that actually made you certain that you know this case of uh, Right to Information Act wasn't just a sudden trope of ideation since you know there were certain events that you've also mentioned in the book and also historically available like that of uh, say 1991 structural economic reforms or various other such uh, examples that you know they, they were observed uh, you know they were successful attempts to strengthen this criteria of secre- secrecy. So all of this also, sort of in my point of view, you know, sort of points out to these attempts that sort of kept pressuring until there was a surprising explosion. So does that not really establish this notion of critical juncture? What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yes, Ritika, again, I mean, you have a habit of asking searching questions, so again, uh, this this answer would not be as long but you know i was you know what does empirical material tell you what does the material that i have kind of brought about in this uh, uh, you know brought to bear in this book tells you you know uh, let us start by discussing what is uh, you know how how do you define a tipping point what are its main characteristics and in my view tipping point has got three characteristics You know, first tipping point is, you know, uh, evolutionary, gradual and largely driven by endogenous processes. Uh, You should be able to delineate small interlinked changes or sequences spread over a historical timeline leading to a certain outcome. Uh, And the third is that changes evolve over time, right? So this can be equated to uh, something like an earthquake where what seems sudden like an earthquake is actually a result of the tectonic plates shifting underneath the earth's surface for a long period of time. Or you can equate it with, you know, grass growing green, because when, you know, the grass has cropped in, uh, the former, patch, there's a, there's a patch of mud and slowly the grass takes root and the former patch of mud is suddenly green, you know, so what actually one fine day, uh, looks sudden is not actually, uh, you know, as sudden as we think it is, you know. So, right information 2005 may look very sudden, may look as if there was a pressure from the international financial institutions, uh, or may look as if there's a pressure from the social movement, which actually led to, or there was a political opportunity, a short window which opened up, which led to change. But my empirical material tells me that, you know, the story is more towards an evolutionary line of inquiry, where, you know, there was a long-drawn churning of ideas, which was endogenously driven by you know actors from within the state. You know, there were government committees, or uh, you know, members of the opposition party, judiciary, uh, which were actually think, you know thinking about these these issues. So there was churning of ideas for a long period of time, and in a way, this was also a political contestation of 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 ideas between you know secrecy and nested secrecy or locked in secrecy in the nascent idea of openness. And that's why I have said that it's a tipping point rather than a critical juncture. Now let's understand what is critical juncture. Critical juncture is when, you know, there's a sudden window of opportunity, which opens up, you know, largely or primarily by an exogenous shock uh, where, you know, the policymakers or, 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 or stakeholders have this, you know, in in this window of opportunity, they have this uh, short a brief period of opportunity where they can opt for a policy alternative, right? And after that policy alternative, after that policy choice is opted for, then there's a long period of persistence, right? This did not happen in RTI. This was not the case in RTI. In RTI, there was no sudden window of opportunity which opened up, you know. Critical juncture is like this uh You know you can equate it with meteor hitting the earth and the species actually some species disappearing from the face of the earth suddenly right and then there 's a long long kind of persistence of certain species for a long period of time before another meteor hits the earth right um, This did not happen in RTI, and that 's why I have kind of distinguished between the two schools of thought, the critical juncture and the tipping point um you know, I've also engaged with the historical institutional li- literature where you know uh, historical institutional literature basically says that you know there are interlinked sequences spread over a historical timeline which leads to a specific outcome. So if you want to explain an outcome, you actually have to trace it back to these interrelated sequences which have a consequential impact on uh, uh, institutional change, right? but they fail to take into account the role of ideas. So what this book does is it persuades us to take history, ideas and historical processes very seriously. And that's why I, that's why I had to distinguish between the tipping point, the evolutionary, the slow moving model of change to a critical, critical juncture change, which is more sudden, which is more exogenous, uh, exogenously driven uh, institutional change.
1: Right. Um, So, you know, seeing how a Right to Information Act is actually, you know, on its way of becoming headless now, would you suggest that, you know, there was, it was just a political opportunity that consecutive governments actually saw with increasing domestic social movements and international playouts for freedom of information at that point in time?
2: You know, Riti, I I don't quite agree that a right to information now is headless in the sense that Uh, You know, I mean, yes, uh, right to information, uh, there have been efforts to kind of blunt the law and dilute the law, but I don't quite agree with the view. I wouldn't call it headless because, you know, even after the amendment, 2019 amendment of right to information, uh, you know, there are agents of accountability who are actually using right to information quite a bit on the ground. And this is not only national level, this is also the grassroots level. Um, you know, uh, so, so there have been efforts to dilute the law, but, you know, they're, they're, the, the, you know uh, the law is not not headless because law, now law has actually hit the ground. Um, and so it is in the hands of the citizens to actually uh, give a push, so to speak. Of course, there are, there are regimes which are, you know, there was never a regime in India after the promulgation of right to information, which was actually supporting right to information because exactly because of the puzzle that I told you about. Why would a state which is uh, captured by the nexus of vested interest, so deeply penetrated by the nexus of vested interest would uh, open up to scrutiny, right? So there's a tendency uh, from the state side not to open up to scrutiny, and yet there's a massive push- pushback from the citizens, right? You can also see it happening in, in, in COVID, you know, during the pandemic, uh, where, uh, you know, government was very reluctant to put information out in the public domain. And yet there are agents of accountability who have been asking questions from the government. And, and you know, there were few things which were actually revealed through RTI. Uh, about, your, about your second question about the political opportunity of the various government here, you know, it, I, I, feel, I feel right to, you know, th- there has to be a nuanced view to that. Yeah, in the sense that there were there were political opportunities, but you know there were political opportunities right since independence, and yet there was push towards secrecy. So if there was a role of international financial institutions, IMF or World Bank or the global global best, you know the global uh, uh, financial institutions, it would have we, we would have seen its impact. after the economic reforms of 1991, right? But we all know that 1994 was the time when the norm of secrecy was actually even. Uh, you know, entrenched more within the state, uh, pushed for more secrecy. Right, the government during that time. So, so I feel that it is more of a more of an evolutionary story, where ideas actually emerged incrementally, endogenously, uh, gradually. It was an incremental movement of ideas over a long period of time, which which actually tipped over. You know, it attained a certain political momentum, right? So you see, from 1989 onwards, most of the governments had actually initiated policy processes within the state to promulgate something like access to information or freedom of information. So National Front government, United Front government, the NDA government, and then finally, uh, you know, the 2005 uh, right to information uh, happened with uh, with you know the UPA in power. But a party which was resisting the idea of openness for a long period of time you know, such was the momentum and the weight of earlier ideas that it had actually converted uh, in 2005. So, so I think it was the weight and momentum of earlier ideas rather than the political opportunity. Uh, though I'm not, I'm not saying, I do acknowledge the role of social network. In fact, I devote a whole chapter in the book, uh, you know, delineating the social movement, delineating the social processes. But I argue that had the state thinking not moved in a certain direction, they would have dealt with the same social actors in a very different way. So it was about the movement of ideas within the state uh, a, you know, towards a certain, certain mindset, towards a certain critical mass that we should have something like this. Uh, that, that led to the promulgation of RTI in 2005.
1: Right. So in this book, you very well you know, illustrate this narrative of epistemic network how socioeconomic, political and cultural changes at both domestic and international levels fabricated this entire network of institutional change at that point in time. So uh, how far do you think the global changes in those times actually influenced the policy making in the state?
2: Um, yes, Um. you know, uh, global norms, or played a consequential role. You know, I do, do acknowledge the role of global norms, but it has to be seen in conjunction with you know, the discourse which was actually taking place, uh, you know, which I just talked about in the two layers, in the two phases that I was talking about. Um, so you know, I actually make two arguments. Uh, the first argument that I make is about the norm demonstration that you know there were other global other countries who were promulgating similar acts or similar right giving giving similar rights to its citizens um and it had a demonstrative impact on the ongoing discourse uh at the national level right so right since 1989 when the com- cabinet committees were being formed what was happening elsewhere was actually uh being given some consideration within the government committees they looked at laws from us uk australia you know, so there was a demonstrative impact. Okay, so, you know, other liberal democracies are doing it, we should do it as well. Um, the second argument that I make is about the, about what Amita calls norm localization where, you know, you uh, uh, actually adopt or you actually uh, draw upon the existing laws or the various facets of the existing laws. Uh, but you don't just mechanically draw upon them, you are actually, you are not like passive learners of these best practices. Uh, You are adapting it according to your local needs, discourse, culture, and political climate. Uh, And so similar thing was happening uh, with the the right information in India when the endogenous discourse was taking place, they were actually drawing upon uh, these laws, best practices. So for instance, during the Shori Committee, which was constituted by the United Front Government in 1997, uh, they considered laws, you know, they considered, you know, on the disclosure clause that what should be disclosed and what not should be disclosed, like file notings and intra departmental notings. Um, they actually drew, they actually considered the law, the US freedom of information law, right? Or whether the Right to Information Act should hold supreme over other laws, right? There's a section 22 in Right to Information Act which says that, you know, in case of a conflict with any other law, it is right to information which would actually hold supreme uh if you know when there was a discussion going on around this particular article or of the law clause of the law uh you know laws from uk us new zealand were actually drawn upon right so there was a norm localization which was happening and and, and it had an impact on 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 the ongoing uh domestic discourse but you know what is interesting is that you know uh, the the role of global norms has to be viewed in conjunction with what was happening at the domestic discourse. So if the norm of C, norm of openness was on the periphery, as I was just talking about some time back, uh, it was still nascent. Uh, the role of global norms was also on the periphery, right? Uh, it did not find any in kind of traction within the state. But as the state thinking had definitely moved. Favorably towards adopting something like uh, right to information since 1989 onwards, you see uh, uh, a traction going on for the global norms as well. Uh, that global norms actually became important during that time. So this kind of challenges also the notion that right to information was homegrown and it was a grassroots, it was it was homegrown, and uh, you know, there was a push from the grassroots up. Um, you know, there was a kind of an impact of what was happening globally. On the domestic discourse as well, but it has to be located in the context of what was happening at the domestic level, rather than just a mechanical norm diffusion happening from the global to the local.
1: Right. Um, so when we talk, as you've also mentioned this in your book, and as we also trace the you know roots of uh, Right to Information Act, it has its up, you know sort of roots emerging from the colonial law. Times so there are various other colonial rules that still continue to you know live and breathe in the country. For example, if we consider the sedition, uh, do you think there can be a whole different institutional change that one could trace if you know this law were to gradually wear out, if sedition law it were to gradually wear out, and do you think you know it would reach a tipping point? What are your thoughts on that? Yes, um,
2: um, um, Ritika, I feel i think the time has come uh, for the you know, archaic colonial law of sedition under you know section 124a to go you know in fact at multiple le- levels the sedition law is uh, similar to the official secrets act uh, you know so sedition as official secrets act you know uh, you know the sedici- seditious act are cognizable and non bailable uh, you know and there are generic terms within the law such as uh, you know the hatred towards the state uh you know or disaffection contempt which can be construed in you know thousand thousand ways you know and this law uh this law as official secrets act has colonial roots and has no place in modern democracy uh you know it is also kind of closely closely related to freedom of expression and speech right uh you know if we sp- is speaking against the state or speak having a critical view of what is happening within the state, can it be construed as as sedition, right? Um, So it has its colonial root, right? Uh, And similar to the right to information discourse, which was taking place in the country, uh, the sedition law uh, also has uh, kind of seen a lot of discourse taking place around this law, Uh, you know, right since 1950s, uh, you know, in the judicial cases, or the famous kedarnath case in 1962 where judiciary was taking uh, uh, you know uh, a stance to uphold or not uphold article 191a so it's the the the, the movement is not linear and sh- and surely it again brings us back to the question of whether the state thinking has moved in a favorable direction towards an idea right so in case of this case of institutional change which is discussed in the book you can see definitely the state thinking had moved favorably uh, towards adopting a, a, a norm of uh, openness or right to information right in this case the state thinking has not moved in that direction in fact you know from the 80s onwards or 70s onwards you see you know sedition law has been utilized by state in different forms and different ways even till date right so the state thinking has not moved in the direction, but you know the similar processes outside the state are taking place. You know, judiciary is interpreting it in different different lights. There's a social movement around it, like there was in right to information. Uh, but you know, as I said, you know the state thinking has not moved moved favorably towards you know adopting a reformist stance on sedition law. Uh, they are dealing with the same set of ju- you know judicial and social actors in a different way. Right, um, so so that's that's my view on sedition law. But it's a colonial law, it's an archaic law, and it has to go. There is no place for a sedition law in democracy. Of course, there can be reasonable restrictions to freedom of expression and speech. I agree with that. But you know, blanket uh, deployment of sedition law is something which which needs to be interrogated um, in in a democracy like India. Um, I, I, I think I forgot to answer your epistemic ne- epistemic network question, Ritika. Uh, Did I?
1: Uh, no, 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 you absolutely uh, gave answer to that as far as I assume. Um, it was very elaborative. Thank you. Um, so, moving on, speaking of the contemporary times, um, when the right to information law was actually passed in 2005, it was being termed as you know one of the most revolutionary um, laws that, was act- that would actually empower the people and you know, give them a hand to hold regimes accountable. But ever since the uh, broader information law was, uh, you know, it was passed, successive governments, one after the other, they have sought to suppress it in one way or the other. And it's quite evident in these times as well. So specifically in recent um, years, public authorities, you know, affiliated with central governments have denied uh, information to citizens under uh, the laws or on matters of vital public interest, uh, so to say. And even um, according to this report published by The Hindu this year, there was this steep, although there was this steep increase, uh, decrease in the rejection of RTIs, but the major concern here basically lied in the ones, um, the RTIs, which were basically rejected without uh, giving any valid reason. So do you think even though we might term this entire revolution of RTI as revolutionary, we might even say that, you know, it was one of the most revolutionary of laws that actually empowered people and it uh, still is empowering people. Do you think it might become a little directionless in the coming future? Like what are your thoughts on that?
2: I, You know, I you are absolutely right. I mean, right since its inception, RTI, uh, there, there has been a massive, massive kind of, effort from the state to dilute the law or blunt the law in one way or the other. And, you know, the most recent amendment uh, was a big blow to the Right to Information Act. Um, and I feel, uh, but I feel there's a massive pushback from the, from the citizens as well. Uh, you know, I, I, as I was mentioning, even during the pandemic, uh, you know, um, citizens have been using right to information to get, you know, at, at least at the central level to get information on the supply of ox- oxygen on the constitution of uh the empowered committees by the government uh, the minutes of those committees uh there was this recently uh, news by the british broadcasting corporation about the use of pm pm funds and uh, uh and, and and the procurement of ventilators across the state uh and most of the information was procured through rti so even when the state is reluctant there is a massive pushback from the citizens and there are these core users of RTI. And I've, you know, one of the other articles, I have used the term agents of accountability uh, where day in and day out, there's a massive pushback from a cluster of citizens, uh, you know, in not at, not only at the central level, but at the subnational level as well. Uh, Every district has somebody uh, who is actually day in and day out asking questions from the government. And this is a big power, in the hands of, of of the people, right? Um, you know, at the at the broader level, at the macro level, one has to see it. And as Nikhilde calls it, you know, the the culture of secrecy or the culture of scrutiny is something uh, which contextualizes this whole churning, which is taking place at the moment. You know, uh it is there's a culture of scrutiny now you know people want to know what's happening with their money people want to know what's happening to their programs people want to know what are their rights and so on and so forth so every district in india now has somebody who files rti about local development programs uh, local local uh, you know uh, uh, information about governance processes and so on and so forth right so there's a massive pushback from the citizen so you know, if RTI was a result of this ideational churning, which took place within the state, there's yet another kind of churning, which is now taking place where, you know, um, this reluctance from the state to part with information is continuously, continuously being questioned and also pressurized by the citizens uh, to kind of divulge information, which the state otherwise would not, right? So. There's another kind of churning which is now taking place, uh, which which needs to be which needs to be looked at. You know, in fact, that's that's one of my future research projects as well. That you know, who are these users of RTI? Why, why do they use RTI? What kind of information do they sort? You know, so detailed granular granular account of RTI use at the grassroots level, um, and also you know, what are the conditions under which the state opens up and shuts? for the questions right uh, under you know what what are the conditions under which the state shuts for further scrutiny by the citizens right uh, so i think beyond the numbers you know how many were rejected how many were uh, how many uh, rti applications were rejected pendency and so on and so forth we actually have to go beyond to understand that how are people engaging with this uh, culture of scrutiny how are pe- people and citizens engaging with this these tools of accountability? And so this is where the future kind of of RTI lies, where you know the power is now in the hands of the citizens uh, to ask questions from the government. Uh, and there are cases where people have actually pursued, even if they are refused information, they have actually gone up uh, right up to the high court and the Supreme Court to uh, you know uh, uh, find their answers. And so there's still... I'm, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm still positive about the power of RTI. Um, there's a still definitely there's a churning, which is happening between the nested norm of secrecy and the norm of openness. Uh, but it is from this churning that this whole culture of scrutiny, uh, accountability will actually uh, emerge.
1: Um, right. So as if, you know, very elaboratively trace this entire evolution of Right to Information Act, which is absolutely, uh, you know, mind shifting, it presents this alternate narrative that actually is completely contrary to uh, what, you know, what actually dominates the present world now. So Manchu, what do you think is the relevance or association of your such elaborative work in the contemporary world, which is, you know, ever changing and changing at a very fast pace?
2: Um, I think I think uh, conceptually it tells us about how uh, you know it brings kind of ideas and the state back in in the whole uh, you know uh, notion of institutional change uh, about how institutions actually change in a complex diverse democracies like India uh, where you know there are different worlds which are existing within the same nation state uh, and so it tells us about uh, also about. Persuades us to take history ideas very seriously. Uh, so there's a contemporary outcome. And if you don't have a historical const- context to it, if you don't have a historic background of history, uh, backing it up, uh, you know, that outcome, the, the explanation or causal explanation of that outcome might not be uh, complete and whole. Right. And so I think that's that's something which is relevant to the policymakers as well. Where you know instead of uh, you know having just contemporary considerations, have a kind of a long dure view of how to formulate and implement policy. Uh, you know, taking into account uh, uh, the the importance of legacies or or ideas uh, is, is something which is which carries lessons for I think most of the uh, developing parts of the global south, uh, countries of the global south, um, and I think that's something which uh, this book kind of takes a takes a takes us in that direction, uh, where you know uh, it has some lessons for the policymakers as well.
1: Um, right. So after this absolutely amazing work that you've put out, what are other projects that you're currently working on?
2: Right. Okay. So um, I think the first one I will You know, the first thing I just I just kind of gave you a hint on that about you know how you know the use of rti or use of right to information and the emerging politics of accountability on the ground is something that i would like to explore you know going beyond um just a kind of a macro view of right to information and how the government is backtracking and so on and so forth uh, you know kind of looking at both the demand and the supply side you know from the demand side you look at how rti is being used how rti why people are using rti who are these actors who use rti uh, and so on and so forth but on the supply side also uh, you know have the ch- you know the change in if there's a de jure change it has also led to de facto change as well uh, you know what are the conditions under which the government opens up you know because there are puzzling instances where in some cases government voluntarily opens up and in some cases it just closes down uh, you know what are the what are the cases? why why does it happen? and so on and so forth? because there are you know the state is a state is not is not this big monolith. It has got different segments to it. And so one needs to kind of alienate it as well. So that is something which will I think uh, I will be preoccupied with it uh, in the next three, four years. but another another project which is very important for me is about the state capacity, especially in the context of pandemic. Where uh, you know this whole question of state capacity uh, emerged, uh, and you know it's not just about general state capacity; it's also about state capacity in states which are considered, you know, historically weak, right? Uh, and I feel that I feel that if you look at the emergence of state capacity in the so-called weak states it will carry policy lessons for other weak states as well, but also within that weak state, it will carry policy lessons for other sectors as well. So that is something which I want to kind of go uh, foray into in the next three, four years as well, where I'm looking at uh, state capacity in weak states. Um, hopefully somebody would be uh, you know, able to give me money to do that research, ritika
1: Right. I mean, that sounds absolutely interesting. And actually, I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, reading that, actually engage with that. So after this uh, amazingly engaging session, I have this last question for you, Himanshu. This is um, really for the sake of our young listeners. So for someone who wants to, you know, explore political science and South Asian studies or say global policy, what course of study and engagement would you want to suggest?
2: I think the first thing which needs to be uh, understood is that you have to kind of locate your interest, locate your passion, uh, what you want to do, and then look for appropriate courses uh, which kind of match those interests, uh, your, your your field of study that you want to do. Um, the second thing is that I also tell my students this, that you actually have to take something which you can, you think you can manage uh, and this is not to say that you don't, don't take on the challenge, but uh, that's why the matching is so important that you kind of take on something which actually matches your interests uh, where you would like to do something uh, of that. And, and the third thing is that you, you know, there also needs to be kind of um, some kind of a homework Uh, some kind of a groundwork uh, about what are you looking for you know what kind of possibilities are you looking for because that will also before you go in a program before you go in that in that field you already know about what you are kind of uh signing up for so to speak right Uh, so some kind of a groundwork needs to be done uh, to to go in that direction some kind of familiarity with this field uh, and, and, you know, and, and the fourth thing is, you know, you, you, you keep at it, even if, you know, there are rejections, you keep at it and you will, you will get it. Um, and so that's my, um, that's my advice to, to, to young students. Uh, and also most importantly, uh, don't forget to have fun because that will actually see you through, uh, when you are going through that whole, uh, kind of rigmarole, whole kind of, uh, exercise of uh, locating the courses and uh, matching those courses with your interests and so on and so forth um, yeah so it's 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 not a it's not an easy formula but this is how it is and nice. also and also also for my also for the for, for the for the young grad students who kind of want to write something and I I kind of go by this is that if you want to kind of don't cram all your writing till the end, right? In the end. I think this has to be uh, kind of a regular habit of putting in a certain amount of words uh, in, your, in your word file, uh, say maybe 300, 400 words every day so that that keeps you uh, in good stead for a long period of time, for a, for a long duration, uh, rather than kind of cramming it all up, uh, you know, in the last few months. Um, it will also hone, hone your skills, your creative skills in writing. And so that's, you know, so it's this, you know, writing is about all creativeness, <clears throat> but writing is also a little bit of clerical. You have to kind of be a regular file push, file pusher, so to speak, when you're writing stuff.
1: Right. Um, with this, we come, uh, you know, to the end of this absolutely engaging uh with Dr. Shiman Shuja. Um, thank you uh, so much, Dr. Jha, for... Uh, Joining us at India Colonize and you know giving this you know absolutely amazing insights about your book and presenting this uh, you know, this set of uh, narrative which actually uh, very crucially challenges the dominant narrative that actually exists in this time. So thank you very much. We are absolutely looking forward to your new projects and we're absolutely uh, keeping an eye on them. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Ritika, and also Omar, who is not here, for having me here and uh, having me on this show. It was absolutely a pleasure to discuss all the facets of my book, but also about you know my academic life uh, with with you and in on uh, India colonized.
0: Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this conversation with Dr. Himan Jha. We really hope you enjoyed this, and if you did. Please consider subscribing to our channel and podcast for more such amazing content. There's a series of such amazingly curated interactions with authors and scholars on the history of the subcontinent. Check out our website www.indiacolonized.com for more blogs and podcasts exploring the tales of India's contemporary history. Do follow us on our social media sites for more exciting updates. Until next time, stay safe and stay curious.